0: Well good morning church. Sorry about that How's everyone doing? Good. good all right, sweet um well, y'all look great. everyone here looks great It's pretty full congregation It's such a blessing to see everyone here. It's so cool seeing people come together to seek Jesus in a fierce way and I'm so ready to be a part of that this morning. Um, I praise God that you're all here each and every one of you. Um, it is a blessing that you're here and we love you um, and if it's for your First time here, we thank you. Uh, if it's like your second time here, thank you. If it's your hundredth time, thank you for being here. Um, I uh, especially want to thank you for just coming, listening to a bunch of weirdos sing and like talk about Jesus and stuff. But we're, we're, we don't mean no harm. We just want to glorify the Creator of the universe. We want to get, be loved by Him. We want to love Him as well. So this time, I believe, will not be wasted. He is going to bless it, He's going to bless this time. Uh, now, before I go any further, before I um, sh- spiel, on, spiel on anything else, um, I want to pray. I want to invite Jesus to be who we, only he can be in this time. I want to ask him to glorify himself. Because I know that there's nothing I can say that can change him. Uh, there's nothing I can say that make a, can make him bigger or cooler or better or, like, more desirable. It's only by him, by his grace, that he's going to be made irresistible to you. It's only by his grace that he is going to pull you to himself. I can't do a whole lot. I'm just a human. Um, but he, on the other hand, is Jesus, and he loves you and he desires you. So uh, if you want to uh, join me, we're going to orient our hearts to accept that grace, to accept that love, to understand clearly what he has for us this morning. If you could bow your heads, please. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you. We adore you. We admire everything you have done for us. Jesus, you came to us. You died a death that we deserved. I pray that this morning we can marvel at your glory and your majesty because you are the one that loves forever and you love eternally and you give us lasting joy. I pray that this morning we can embrace that. I pray that this morning we can just collectively desire you. And glorify your name. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So for the past several weeks, we've been uh, going through series uh, in, a, in the Gospel of Luke, right? And uh, we've been studying it in a many, many uh, different ways. The uh, past two weeks, Tom went through uh, and taught on these messages concerning our idea and our de- desire to give. And what happens when we uh, plant the seed of generous joy in our hearts and how the world changes as a result of that. Uh, if you missed those sermons, I would encourage you uh, to hop online, check out the podcast. Um, it's a great resource. I mean, there's so many other resources too, but uh, if you want, we, uh, we put it on there so we can listen to it, and we can be reminded um, and collectively think every single day how important Jesus is in our lives. So we, if, we, if you want to be a part of that, it's online. Uh, it's pretty easy. I don't even, I don't know the website. I think it's gunnisonbethany.org. Oh. Come, it is okay, all right, um, where am I at? All right, yeah, so I, the last thing I want to do is uh, encourage people to come once a week to the church and to think that they need to just have one little portion of Jesus per week, one little small meal, because I think it can be very foolish for us to think that because. Every single day, every single moment, we are gifted with a bountiful feast, with a glorious feast, with a massive meal in his word and in his spirit that it would just be foolish for us to disregard how awesome it is in every moment of our lives. So if we can do that, he will be brought to glory. Um, if you recall three weeks ago, Ryan preached on uh, a message concerning uh, an ultimate question a question that Jesus asks not only his disciples but he asks every single person on this earth he asks who do you say that I am who do you say that I am who do you say Jesus is is he just like a nice guy is he a a good guy maybe maybe he was like a political like revolutionary figure in like the first century or so uh, maybe he's like some like hippie like love guru that like has like a satchel and some birkenstocks and he gives away like free fish sandwiches and stuff like that <laughs> maybe he's that but who do you say he is who do you say that he is now i think our culture um in our world has kind of twisted has kind of distorted that question to the point where it turns it um upside down and it says uh It asks us, who do you say you are? Who do you say that you are? Who's uh, who's Tyler? Like, who is Tom? Who is anybody? Who are you? And after that, it's kind of free game, right? You can just kind of set your own, like, blank slate, right? You can be who you want to be. You can shoot for the stars. You can, like, follow your heart, man. You got it? Like, just do it. Find your inner self. Like, all these things that are kind of silly sometimes. But... (laughs) She thought I was silly. That's right. <laughs> now, finding our identity is in no way wrong. We're, we're supposed to find our identity. But it's the order of events that we, we mess up all the time. I think where we go wrong, where I go wrong, is that I prioritize my identity before, and I prioritize it above the identity of the God of the universe. I'm more concerned with that identity than with his. In other words, I'm looking uh, to create order and purpose in my life in places other than the one who spoke created order and purpose into existence. Are you following me? I'm going to say that again. I'm looking to create order and purpose in my life in places other than the one who spoke created order and purpose into existence. It's kind of ridiculous sometimes how we go about it. If you can open up your Bibles to uh, Luke 9... We're going to be in verses 28 through 36. And uh, while you're going there, I just want to mention that uh, if you do not have a Bible, we want you to have one. We want you to be challenged by it. We want you to think about it and read it daily. Uh, And if you don't have one, take the one that's from underneath the seat in front of you or the seat next to you. Just don't take your neighbor's Bible. That's theft. We don't endorse that here. Just keep the one that we're offering you. So the passage that we'll be reading is called, or titled, I guess, The Transfiguration of Jesus. And that's just kind of a big word. It kind of scared me the first time I read it, right? I was like, trans what? Like, what's going on here? Um, (laughs) It's basically and essentially a big word that describes the change in appearance of something. And in this case, we're talking about the change in appearance of Jesus himself, But at the root of this passage, we're going to find that um, not only is it this image that we see of Jesus, but it says identity that is revealed in glory. And furthermore, it has everything to do with the question that Jesus asked his disciples. He said, or asked, who do you say that I am? And of course we have that answer. Of course, Peter answered it and he said, "Uh, you are the Christ of God. Of course. And we give like Peter a pat on the back because he got something right for the first time. And that is the answer, though. That is our answer. But up until this point in, this, in the story, we, uh, we have not yet seen that truth to be like, revealed or unveiled, per se. And uh, Jesus, he's already started his ministry. He's already started healings and uh, um, speaking and preaching the good news. But as if those like, words he was speaking weren't like good enough for everyone to uh, prove himself, he goes and does what we're about to read we're going to see that Jesus comes in clutch and he reveals himself to them when they really, really needed to see it. And he reveals exactly how he is the Christ of God that the world had been longing for. The passage in Luke 9, 28 through 36 states this. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, had seen. Now, I want to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. I want to envision us there. Um, Because there's three of them, right? Peter, James, and John, kind of the three amigos of the disciples. They're always causing uh, ruckus and stuff. Uh, Imagine being a part of an event that's so big, that's so majestic and so glorious that um, not even all the other disciples were able to be a part of. He picked these three to come on top of that mountain that evening. And I hope um, by God's grace and by his love for us, we, we can actually envision us there. We can envision us there and see it for ourselves, that majesty and that glory. Um, I once heard this particular passage uh, preached on by a man by the name of Ben Haley. He's a pastor at the church I went to up in Denver. Um, I admire this guy. He's an incredible preacher of the word. Um, and basically, in this passage, he distinguishes three things that we see about Jesus. Three distinct points. So what I'm going to do is kind of use those three to structure how we're going to envision ourselves there and accurately um, place that context within its time, but we can see into it. And the first of those things we find in the first few verses um, of this passage, we see the glory of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of Jesus Christ Look again uh, at verse 29 of the passage where it states, And he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Whoa! Things are getting crazy up there on top of that mountain. And in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, there's another account of this. He tells the same story, but what he describes it as, he says, uh, And his face shone like the sun. So bright, right? Like the sun especially in, like, the desert where they were at. The sun was bright. So referencing the sun was probably pretty accurate. Now, it states later in the text that uh, the disciples were heavy with sleep. And the first time that I read that, I was, like, on the one hand, like, how in the world are these people sleeping during this, right? Like, what a bunch of dodos. What are they doing? (laughs) Like, and then on the other hand, imagine what they thought when they woke up to the majestic Jesus glorifying to Himself on the mountain, like He's evolving into a Charizard or something up there, it's going like it's going down, and they're waking up to that. Like I mentioned earlier, they they experienced a multitude of healings. They experienced Jesus in His prime minister, in His prime ministry, and they saw Him feed five thousand families. They saw Him speak parables about His kingdom. But up until this point, they had not seen an event so sensory overloading. They haven't seen an event that took over their senses where they can feel it, and they can see it, and they can touch the actual glory of Jesus. And they wake up to it. I mean, when I wake up in the morning to my phone is I want to freak out and throw it across the room, let alone the actual revealed glory of Jesus Christ himself. Imagine that. Now, another thing to note when speaking of the revealed glory of Jesus, Scripture is mostly concerned with two main events. And those two main events are two comings of Christ, comings of Jesus, or arrivals. Kind of the Greek word for that is parousia, his coming to the earth. The first being his life on earth and his ministry and his healings and uh, and his death and his burial and resurrection, what he accomplished on earth. That is his first coming. Um, But his second is being the moment that he returns. And when he returns, he's going to bring with him his kingdom on earth. As he states in the Lord's Prayer, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When he returns this time, it's going to be in full glory to wipe away every tear, to wipe away every pain, to put an end to death altogether, to finish and silence it for good. And we, as Christians, we have a sure anticipation. We have a sure hope that he's coming back with that kingdom, that he's going to establish it in full. And it's this exact glory that I'm talking about that is revealed on that mountain to those three disciples. It is the glory of the God of the universe displayed in full, but it's just for a brief moment. Not only do the disciples see um, the glory of Jesus on their mountaintop experience, um, they then, which leads us to our second point, uh, they see Jesus' mission. Verse, uh, verse 30 through 31 state uh, this, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So not only uh, is Jesus being displayed with radiant glory and majesty, we see then Moses and Elijah are just kind of hanging out. And you might ask, like, what are they doing there, right? What, what, is Mo- what are Moses and Elijah doing there? Um, well, if I think if we look a little bit further into the text and we uh, examine, I guess, the scope of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, we'll see that they play a very important role on that mountain. And I think kind of as another preface is, uh, we have to remember that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, the God of the Old Testament. The promises that he makes is made pointing towards Jesus, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. So kind of to preface it with that, but traditionally speaking, when we're speaking of uh, monumental figures in the Old Testament uh, that God uses to like reveal himself or to speak or to move or to do stuff, we are reminded of Moses and Elijah. Essentially, in, in Moses, we get God's deliverance from Egypt, the slaver of Egypt um, for the Israelites, the, um, the Exodus, right? And we find his covenant. We find his law in Moses, God's law. Uh, in, in Elijah, we see the great prophet of God, the great speaker on behalf of God that God speaks through, right? So Moses represents the law, while Elijah represents the prophets. So here we have the entire history of the Old Testament and of Israel summed up in just two people. And we see the three of them talking about something, right? And I'm sure by how I just described it, it's important. It's something important. So what is it? We see in verse 31 that they speak of Jesus' departure. I find it uh, incredibly interesting though that the word in Greek that they use when exp- describing the departure is the word exodus. Is the word exodus. So literally speaking, the text, that this, the text states that they were speaking of Jesus' exodus. So literally speaking, the text is telling us of a new exodus. So we have, the Mo- we have Moses which we know of that exodus, right? Um, God's deliverance of his people out of slavery from Egypt. But now we're talking about another exodus. One that Jesus himself has begun that points forward to his death on the cross. One that points forward to his resurrection. One that who, those who have faith in him can actually find salvation Instead of bringing his people out of slavery from the Egyptians, he is now bringing people out of the slavery of sin altogether. Let me repeat that again. Instead of bringing his people out of the slavery from Egyptians, he is bringing his people out of the slavery of sin altogether. The Reformation Study Bible is is the Bible I use. It's a great um, resource. It states this. Only Luke reports the subject of this conversation. That Jesus' death, discussed during this revelation of glory, shows its centrality for his mission. It is by his death that glory comes to sinners. Sin leads us to our third point. We see Jesus' confirmation. We see his confirmation as Israel's Messiah, as his all-purposeful being. And as we move through the passage, we see that uh, Peter, he speaks up as he always does on behalf of the um, disciples. And he says, "Uh, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, like this, it says, not knowing what he said. Like Scripture says, you are ignorant. (laughs) Um, At first, you might ask, like, what what did he do wrong? What, What did Peter do wrong? Because it seems like he's just being, like, hospitable. He's taking care of some really important dudes, right? Um, I think he actually did something a little fundamentally wrong. Um, I think where he went wrong is that he wanted that experience to last. He didn't want Jesus to go die on the cross. He didn't want to go see his Savior go die on the cross. He wanted him to just reveal his full glory in that present moment for the rest of eternity. But he didn't think about the necessity of the cross. Jesus had to go and die on the cross. The same sort of situation um, Peter finds himself. It's the same situation they find themselves when um, Jesus. Not uh, he foretells his death, and Peter tells him, "Don't go, Jesus. Like you're you're like the savior. We don't want you to d- go and die. We don't want that." And then uh, Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Like he calls Peter Satan. Like he's like infuriated at him. And uh, like, do you guys remember that? It's the same exact situation. And I can just, uh, I just imagine the other disciples hearing what Peter said on the mountain and just saying, come on, Peter. Like, let's go. Let's be real. Like we've been over this already. It's classic Peter. It's a classic Peter moment. And in the midst of Peter having one of his moments, uh, he's interrupted by the very voice of God. The text describes this scene as a cloud coming over the group of people and shadowing over them as the disciples stood in fear. The text states this, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. He's talking about Jesus Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. It's worth it. Listen to him. Follow him. Because listening leads us to follow. Follow leads us to doing. And doing leads us to glorifying the creator of the universe. It's important to listen. Step one. Listen. And it's at this point in the uh, scene where it reaches its climax. And uh, it's God the Father. He's audibly speaking the identity of Jesus before the disciples and two of the most important people in history. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. How amazing is that? His identity is confirmed. The true Savior of the world. And to summarize these events, um, I uh, I have this quote from N.T. Wright, which is one of my favorite pastors. He's one of my favorite theologians, great thinker in modern times. Um, He says this, Suppose that, after all, the ancient Jewish story of a God making the world, calling a people, meeting with them on a mountain, suppose this story were true. And suppose this God had a purpose for his world and his people that had now reached the moment of fulfillment. Suppose, moreover, that this purpose had taken human form and that the person concerned was going about doing the things that spoke of God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven, of God's space and human space coming together at last, of God's time, in human time, meeting, emerging for a short, intense period, and of God's new creation and the present creation somehow knocking unexpected sparks off one another, the earth shall be filled, said the prophet, with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. It is within the sum such set of suppositions that we might make sense of all the strangest moments of all at the heart of the narrative, when the glory of God comes down, not to the temple in Jerusalem, not to the top of Mount Sinai, but onto and into Jesus himself, shining in splendor, talking with Moses and Elijah, drawing the law and the prophets together into the time of fulfillment. The transfiguration, as we call it, is the central moment. It is the central moment. But if you're like me, you may be thinking, but, what, but what, about, what about here and now, Jesus? Like, all of this may, be, may have been beautiful, it may have been glorious for the people that were on that mountain, but for the rest of us, we have yet to see the manifested physical body of Jesus, right? Let alone the glory that was revealed in the same way as he displayed it on the mountain to those disciples and Moses and Elijah. So where is that glory? And where does that put us today? But before um, all hope is lost, I don't want to be depressing this morning, um, I want to tell you that we actually do have that glory. Uh, and we have it in even, in even greater capacity than that which those select few disciples had on the mountaintop experience. If you could turn to uh, the Bible in Second Peter um, 1. 1. We're going to be in verses 16 through 21. Uh, remember, Peter, he's one of the three disciples there. The author of this book that we're about, or passage that we're about to read. And in Peter in this book is, he's writing many years after the fact. He's writing many years after the fact of even the resurrection of Jesus. And uh what I want to do before we read it is just pay close attention to the tone in which he's going about this um, passage. I think we can learn a lot from it. Um, The passage states this, it says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, the father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until that day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The point in which Peter blows everyone's minds with a ridiculous amount of truth, is in verse 9, and as I repeat it, just pay attention closely, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It's more fully confirmed. Peter is implying that there indeed is something that's exponentially greater, that's so much more glorious than that mountaintop experience he had long ago. There's something more glorious and something more permanent than that brief encounter that he had with the glorified Jesus. And it's found solely in the prophetic word of God, and it's sitting right in your lap. It's sitting right there. That is it, and it's in full. There's no error. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good. And it has his gospel. And he refers to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. I don't know about you, but when I look around, I certainly see a dark place. I see a very dark place. One that is in need of a brilliant light. Something that is so much greater than whatever humans could possibly come up with. Something that is beautiful. It's his gospel the Bible tells us the complete narrative of God's saving plan for humanity. Starting in the Old Testament with Moses and Elijah and ending in victory on the cross at Calvary. And worship team, you guys can come up. Um, We're here now. So we're here. We have his word in full, right? The complete history of God's saving plan, as I just mentioned. We have his gospel. And if I haven't presented the gospel um, clearly or you may be thinking, uh, this just doesn't really apply to me. Um, I mean, I might, I might actually need to see that physical Jesus to ever believe him. This book isn't going to do, right? Then I just want to talk for a moment. and I want to speak something to you. And I'll be doing you no good at all if I didn't do this in love. We have sinned abundantly. We we all have. We've denied God in every single way possible, and, and that's just by our human nature. Scripture says that there's absolutely no good that any human can do aside from the goodness found in Jesus. That's deep. We are just broken in so many ways. We'd rather find joy, we'd rather find fulfillment in the things of this world that give us temporary joy and fulfillment and justify our steps every single step of the way. And none of us, I know, by nature want to hear that apart from Christ, there is no real lasting joy, that apart from Christ, there is no real love and purpose. My friends, the weight of sin is a a weight that we can't carry on our own. We can't do much with it. And I know that a lot of us in this room have, if not every single one of us, have felt every ounce of our insufficiency at some point in our lives. We have felt every ounce of our sin towards God and we hate it. But in every way that we have sinned, Jesus has in every way dealt with those things on the cross so that you don't have to deal with them anymore. And what this means is that Jesus died the death that we deserve. He was that full substitution for our sins. And when he was buried and when he rose on that third day, Jesus left in the grave all the power of sin that we have all been a slave to. But we are no longer slaves to sin. Because he died the death that we deserve. We are no longer guilty of those sins, but we are identified as a new creation. A new creation that's called holy, that's called blameless, that's called loved, that's called beloved. You are called everything, good and pure, because of the work that he did on the cross, because he loves us unconditionally. So I ask of you, and I ask with every part of my heart, to repent of your sins, to turn away from them and follow the cross. Seek his gospel, because it's such good news for everyone. we will have people uh, up here pray, And we're just here to love. We're here to encourage you through prayer. If you need specific prayers in your life, um, come up. But if you are for the first time wanting to accept this salvation from Jesus, then come forward in our time of reflection and worship. We want to pray for you. you. We want to come alongside you to celebrate what the Lord's doing in your heart. But in everything that we do right now, we want, I want us to give him the glory that he deserves. If you turn the lights off and um, elders and other pastors come up. Let's praise him.